Here is the word of God as it is written in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 8. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings, so that we also might reign with you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, those of you who have been with us as we've studied through this book know that the problem in Corinth that Paul is addressing primarily is a problem of schism, division. Corinthians were dividing amongst themselves, trying to get a leg up on each other, trying to uh, show their superiority. And the thing they were doing to get climb higher was having this or that pastor, this or that preacher or teacher as a champion. So the Israelites had David as a champion. And the Philistines had Goliath as a champion. Well, this is how the church was dividing up. One group had this giant preacher and another had this giant preacher, right? And they were dividing amongst themselves and Paul wrote them to rebuke them about this and to heal their church because a united church uh, lies about God the Father and God the Son and their unity. And as he dealt with the division... In the past chapter that we've just gotten done studying, he dealt with himself and Apollos. So he chose two leaders, himself one of them and Apollos the other, and talked about them a lot, using them as examples, using himself and Apollos as examples of leaders in the church, officers in the church, preachers, teachers, shepherds. And if we go back to the previous chapter, verse 3 of chapter 3, the second half of the verse, we read, Paul writes them and says, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now we know that there were more men than just these two involved in the division in the Corinthian church. There were more men at the head of different parts of the schism. Undoubtedly, Paul and Apollos were used in the division in strife and jealousy. Undoubtedly, people took them as their heroes. But in verse 6 of our text this morning, we read that the Apostle Paul's use of his name and of Apollos' name was symbolic. Verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So the Apostle Paul was using his and Apollos' names as placeholders for others who were at the center of the schism. 
For the sake of the Corinthians, he was applying their names, he says, figuratively. Their two names were a kind of parable representing others who were guilty. The others were building of wood, hay, and straw, while the Apostle Paul and Apollos were building of gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, why did the Apostle Paul speak in a parable? Why did he speak figuratively and use just his name and Apollos' name? Well, it's not because he had a principle against mentioning people in public, and it's not because he had a principle against mentioning people negatively in public, because we see him doing this regularly in the letters that he sends out. We know, for instance, that he speaks negatively by name of Alexander the metalworker. We know that he speaks negatively in public about the Apostle Peter. We know he speaks negatively in public of Yodia and Syntyche, the two women who were not agreeing with one another in the Lord. Each of these people was rebuked publicly by name in the letters of the Apostle Paul and many others. So we know it wasn't because he had a principle against naming people and rebuking them publicly. And yet here he doesn't give their names. Why? Well, it may have been that the Apostle Paul believed that using the names at the center of the schism would give the men promoting themselves too much recognition and therefore too much power. It may have dignified them. It may be that he chose not to name them because he didn't want to give them the dignity of having their names listed by him, an apostle. It may have been that the Apostle Paul knew that dealing with himself and Apollos, acknowledging his own responsibility and his coming judgment by God of the quality of his work, would leave little room for those not wanting to think of their evil motives and character and of that of those men under them. In other words, maybe the thought was on the, that Paul was trying to foster in the church was if the Apostle Paul and Apollos are nothing and will soon be judged by the materials they've used in building the church, not one of these men who are the subordinates of the Apostle Paul and Apollos can be anything at all. And each of them will certainly be judged. After all, next to Paul and Apollos, they are nothing. Well, anyhow, Paul says, I've spoken about Apollos, and I've spoken about myself figuratively. And this was to serve you. And so we know he had a pastoral reason. We know that he had a reason that flowed from his love for the congregation, that it wasn't thoughtless, but thoughtful. Now Paul goes on in the second half of verse 6 to state the nature of the sin there in the Corinthian church, the error and the motive at the heart of the error or of the sin. He says, verse 6, These things, brethren, I spoke figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now, if you want to know why I won't get to head coverings for five years, it's because we're not going to get to the second half of this verse. The first half is enough for us today to eat, to feed on. So what is the first half of this second half? In other words, (laughs) the middle 
quarter, the second middle quarter. He says, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. And so we know that at the center of the division in Corinth were leaders, preachers, teachers who wanted to exceed what was written. Now what does Paul mean when he says what is written? Well, he means scripture. He means the word of God. And so here was a schism in the church, and at the center of the schism was the sin of exceeding what is written. Going beyond what is written. Leaving behind what is written. The sin of leaving behind the Word of God written. Or rather, the words of God written. Leaving it behind. And we know the motive because Paul is no philosopher who thinks that you should never ever use an ad hominem argument. He gives us the motive for exceeding what is written, and the motive is what? It's very clear. What's the motive? What's the motive? Arrogance and pride. And so they were proud, and therefore they were leaving the Bible behind. They were trying to exceed Scripture. Get above it, get beyond it, bypass it, they did not want to be limited by Scripture. Now, I want us to think very carefully about this, because as I see it, the entire church today in the English-speaking world has left Scripture behind because of its arrogance. I know, because I've been to seminary, Billy Graham's seminary, I know, Billy Graham is the, was the chairman of the board, I know that at my seminary I was taught to get beyond Scripture. That that was the curriculum. Now, it was done in such a way as to present itself as being never getting beyond Scripture. But, of course, it's always our habit to make a big show of giving God what he wants and not giving him anything at all that he wants. Right? He says he wants a nut, and we give him an empty shell. Right? And so the Corinthians were arrogant, and therefore they were trying to get beyond Scripture. Now, is there any other group in Scripture that is mentioned negatively in this way? Any other church, any other city church? Who? Well, clearly Galatia has tried to get beyond it, yes. But there's another church that is actually singled out as not having the honor and respect for Scripture that they're supposed to have. Do you know who it is? It's the Thessalonians. Now, where does it tell us that the Thessalonians weren't honoring Scripture the way they should? Well, probably none of you could come up with it because 
it's mentioned in a verse where you know the other part of the verse, and so you've forgotten the other part. All right? Here is where it is. It's in the book of Acts, where in 1711 it says this. These, and this refers to the Bereans, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. I never knew that was there, you know? I never knew that it was making an odious comparison. These, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they, meaning the Bereans, received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, we all know the Bereans, right? We all know that they were noble-minded. We all know that they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether the things they, were preached, they had pre- preached to them and taught were true, right? We know that's what a Berean is. We know that Bible studies used to be called the Bereans. We know that churches had Bereans, a Berean Sunday school class, a Berean Bible study or small group, right? And so by using that name, the church signifies that the group to which the name Berean refers received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, how did they receive the word? Did you hear when I prayed? I prayed that God would make me preach his word. How did they receive the word? Well, they received the word by sitting under the preaching and teaching of fallible men. But they examined what those fallible men said to them every day by the word of God. They were enthusiastic eaters and drinkers of the word of God. But they always had the anchor of going to the actual text of scripture to see if what they said was true. That's the Bereans. And we know that the Thessalonians were not like that because they're negatively compared here. Now, which side are the Corinthians on? Are the Corinthians on the Berean side or are they on the Thessalonian side? The Corinthians are on the Thessalonian side. Why do we know that? Well, we know that because right here it says that they were proud and tried to exceed what is written. They wanted to get beyond Scripture. And we also know it because later in the text, in this text of uh, the letter to uh, 1 Corinthians, We read this in 1 Corinthians 10. We read, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so he's rehearsing the history of the sons of Israel in the wilderness. All right? For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. So he's speaking about the Old Testament, the things written, and he's saying, these things written, they're recorded because what happened to the sons of Israel is an example for us. 
so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. When was that? I'll give you a clue. It was right before the idols were ground up into dust and they had to eat them. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and what? They were, they were written for our instruction. They were written for our instruction. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, let me ask you again. Were the Corinthians like the Thessalonians or were they like the Bereans? Here we have the Apostle Paul saying that the Old Testament record was written down for the Corinthians so that they would not what? They would not grumble, so that they would not complain, so that they would not disobey, so that they would not be immoral. These things, and it's not just what they did that was sin, but how God responded, which was to kill and kill and kill and kill them. These things, he says, writing to a Christian church, to a New Testament church, under the New Covenant. He says, these things in the Old Testament, not just the sins of God's people, but his judgment of them, these things are written down as warnings for us. Now just think, think about your and my perverse mind and think, you know, if you were to pick a place to read to your family during family devotions, would you pick the account of the Israelites having to be judged by God, having God kill them? If you were going to preach, would you want to preach a sermon on God slaying 20,000 of them? You know what? Every single one of us would like to get beyond the things written. I mean, come on, it's so elementary. It's so obvious. Why did they want to get beyond the things written? They wanted to get beyond the things written because the things written weren't entirely uplifting. As a matter of fact, they were kind of sobering. And if you want to escape the fear of God, the Old Testament is not a good place to go. And so, in the past 150 years, a whole movement sprung up which was largely an effort to do what was a heresy in the first centuries, namely to get rid of the Old Testament. And if you go into Christian churches today in America, I challenge you to find one that preaches on the Old Testament. 
And if you go into Christian churches today, and I don't mean the denomination that calls itself the Christian church, I'm referring to churches that follow Jesus Christ. If you go into Christian churches today, what you'll find over and over again is that there is no fear of God. And to me, that's proof positive that we too, in our arrogance, have tried to get beyond the things written. We don't fear God. And there's no more certain proof of arrogance and of being untethered from the Word of God than the absence of the fear of God. And so I say again to you that in the English-speaking world today, which is the world I know, It is universally true that we have gotten beyond the things written. And that in our seminaries, we teach the men and women today, who will be our shepherds, how to leave Scripture behind. If you do any study of higher education in the United States, it's very easy to sum up the history. And the history is institutions are founded to train pastors to shepherd their flock, to preach and teach God's Word, to be limited by the things written, to honor the things written, to feed the things written, to never get beyond the things written. And within a few short years, the institutions founded to train pastors never to get beyond the things written, move beyond the things written, and reverse their direction and teach everybody that comes under their aegis, their purview, their authority, teach everybody to get beyond the things written. Take Harvard, for instance. What was Harvard founded for? Harvard was founded simply to train ministers of the word and sacrament. That's it. Indicative of the reason, the purpose for which the founders of Harvard created it, are these principles adopted in 1646, all right, a few years ago they adopted what they called their rules and precepts, commandments, rules and commandments. Number two of those rules and precepts for Harvard was this. Number two, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And then they put in the reference John 17, 3 in case you didn't know where they got that from. And they continue, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only gives wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. And then they put in the reference Proverbs 2, verse 3. 
the founding rules and precepts, commandments of Harvard adopted by the men who founded it. Number three, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein both in theoretical observations of language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths as his tutor shall require. According to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Psalm 119, 130. Harvard's motto adopted in 1692 was truth for Christ and the church. It was a translation of the Latin words. I thought it was interesting that the change from Harvard to Wheaton was for Christ and his church to for Christ and his kingdom. I'm for the kingdom of God, but it's interesting that Harvard was for Christ and his church. The school's shield with this motto prominently inscribed on it is found this day in Harvard Yard. It's found in the library. It's found on a number of the dorms. And yet now Harvard's officers and professors have exceeded what is written. And they make every effort to exceed it more and more, if possible, each and every day. And what of Indiana University? Well, just like Harvard, IU was founded solely for the purpose of training pastors, ministers of the word and sacrament. Chartered in 1820, it was called Indiana's State Seminary. And it was called that until 1828 when they added to the curriculum classes in the liberal arts and consonant with that purpose, they changed the name to the College of Indiana, Indiana College. Prior to then, the only subjects taught were Greek and Latin and it had only one faculty member, the Reverend Baynard Hall, who also served as IU's first president. In 1828, eight years later, was when the other courses of study were added and it became Indiana College. And then ten years later, the decision was made to train doctors and lawyers also, and the name was changed to Indiana University. But the preeminence of its first commitment to train pastors for Christ Church remain, and thus the first four presidents who served collectively for the first 40 years were all ordained ministers of the Word and Sacrament. You know, one thing I've noticed, I've noticed that it's very rare today to have pastors on the boards of Christian colleges and seminaries. As a matter of fact, it's rare to have them on the boards of any Christian organization. Why would you not want a pastor on the Board of Accountability for a Christian college. (laughs) You know why? Because he might have principles. 
And he certainly doesn't have money. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> he doesn't have money, and he may have principles, and both of them are problems. You know, it used to be 100 years ago, it was pastors that led Christian organizations. Pastors. So the first four presidents of IU were pastors. And then what about the Bible, the things written? Well, IU has a seal that's reproduced everywhere today. I mean, absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere. It's you. Come on. Come on, David. Ubiquitous. <laughs> it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And if you look at it, you'll see an open book with lines shooting out of the book representing light issuing from that book. Now, that's a perfect picture for IU, isn't it? Get everybody into books. Maybe they'll have an iPad on it soon. Right? Get people to read. Get them to think. Get them to interact with the text. And so a book open with lights, rays of light coming out from it. And just below that book are these Latin words, lux et veritas, which being translated means Light and truth. Now, what is the book? Is it Sartre? Is it Simone de Beauvoir? Is it It Takes a Village? Is it Mark Twain's autobiography? What's the book? What's the book? Well, there's no indication what the book is. You know why? Well, because the officers and professors of Indiana University have changed the seal. It used to be the original seal said what? It said Holy Bible. That's what it said. But it's gone. It's gone. If you want to see the words as they originally appeared on the seal... Go to what Ward Scott tells me. I've never looked about it at it, but uh, go to the well house. I don't even know where the well house is. Where's the well house? Past the gates, on the right or left as you go in the gates. On the right. Is it over by the observatory? It's before you get to the observatory. Go there and look. They say that on the exterior wall is the original seal. And it has the, word, the words Holy Bible on it. Now listen. You can go to every single institution in this country of higher education. And what you'll find is that what I've just read for Harvard and IU is repeated over and over and over again. Right now, in my lifetime, I have seen the death of Bible colleges. And the first indication you have that they've died is when Columbia Bible College becomes Columbia International University. They renamed it. Then I went down there, and I was going to speak in chapel, and I sat with the president of Columbia Bible College, and I, I told him that relatives of mine had told me that they had feminism presented to them in their marriage and family class. 
feminism. And I thought the president should know that. I said it to him privately. I didn't put it up in a book. I didn't write in a magazine. I didn't put it up on the blog. I said it to him privately. When I got done telling him that this had gone on in the class, as reported to me by both a man and a woman who were quite sophisticated in their ability to listen and know what they were being taught, his response was, well, we do not have a position on that here at Columbia International University. So... The Bible College changes its name to Columbia International University, and then it gets rid of teaching the headship of the husband and the submission of the wife. They don't have a position on that at Columbia Bible College. And where do missionaries get trained in America today? They get trained at Moody Bible Institute and Columbia Bible College. Where do pastors come from? They come from Columbia Bible College. They have a seminary to train pastors. It's probably one of the most conservative in the country. But they have a position, and their position is to not have a position on something that Scripture is absolutely clear on from the beginning to the end. And so if you go into churches around our country today or anywhere in the English-speaking world, what you will find is that when it comes to controversial issues that the op-ed pages of our newspapers are writing about day after day after day and that every sitcom makes jokes about, those issues are avoided by our institutions that train our missionaries and our pastors. Being proud, we have moved beyond the Word of God. And we still make a big show of our commitment to Scripture, but it's dead. Because I can guarantee you that you go into churches around the country this morning, and there will be nothing said which will cause you to fear God. Nothing said that will cause a woman to repent of her rebellion against her husband. Nothing said that will cause a sodomite to repent of his desire for perversion. And you say, I mean, really, sodomite and perversion? Why don't you speak like, you know a little more sensitively about Okay, fine. You want me to get beyond what is written, right? That's what you want me to do, right? You see? If it's about me proving that I'm sensitive and that I love you and that I have compassion and that I'm not arrogant, as a postmodern understands arrogance, I leave Scripture behind and it's all about me. And I show you how I can contextualize and I can be missional and I can be the kind of person you want to show up in your living room. And so in pulpits today, what is done over and over and over again is men stand there making a big show of being approachable, making a big show of doubting themselves and being in process and understanding wounds. In fact, they themselves, they refer to themselves as wounded healers. And they ask questions.
And the whole thing is the church of Jesus Christ in the English-speaking world has entirely turned her back on the things that are written. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's none. I've been thinking recently, what characterizes my former denomination, all the meetings I've gone to, and what is characteristic of it is there is no fear of God before their eyes. What characterizes the modern scholar of Scripture? What characterizes the modern scholar of Scripture is that he operates on the Word of God as if it were a dead cadaver, or cadaver, or however you pronounce it. You know, it were a specimen on a table that he was trying to like put under, on a slide under a microscope. No fear of God. No authority of the Word of God. Cut and paste. Don't read this. We made the mistake last night of reading for family devotions. I'm so glad Taylor wasn't there. It was just me and Mom and Meryl. And we made the mistake of reading one of the chapters in the 20s of the book of Leviticus. And boy, you want to see all the places that we've gotten beyond. Just open willy-nilly to Leviticus and read it out loud. And make sure that there's a member of the opposite sex there when you do it. Preferably a child. <laughs> and you'll think to yourself, can't we get beyond this? Last night, the one we read must have had the word nakedness like, what, 25 times? 25 times the word nakedness. <laughs> and I thought that was bad until I hit the word member. <laughs> and we weren't talking about church membership either. And then it talked about where it should and shouldn't be put. Now listen. This is Scripture. This is the book and the words that Scripture tells us are supposed to taste to us sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey. How could it ever be sweeter than honey to read where Scripture talks about our member? And nakedness. Come on. Is that text sweeter than honey to you, David Johnson? It's sweeter than honey to you. It's sweeter than honey. You see... We're so evolved and so progressive and, and, and so liberated and so arrogant and so proud that we have incest in our homes. And that men lay with men. And that right around the corner is going to be men and women laying with dogs and cats and horses. Do you know what that unbelieving pagan woman, Margaret Mead, said about the Kinsey Report of Indiana University? What she said is, this treats sex as if it's a biological function and nothing else. 
And she said, in a little while, we're not even going to remember why we have sex with men and women instead of with animals. And she had no faith. And today, if I even mention bestiality next to sodomy, people are so offended. How could you even put the two of them together? And I say, do you know, in the chapter of Scripture, of Scripture that I read yesterday, to my family, in that Scripture, it says no to homosexuality, and then cheek by jowl. The next thing it says is no to bestiality. And you find a place in evangelicalism where anybody is warning against sodomy and against bestiality right next to each other. In fact, you find a place, you find a home where that text of Scripture is read to the children. And then our children grow up victims. Why? Because we're arrogant and we want to get beyond Scripture. That's why. That's why. Trust me. Trust me. All Scripture is theopneustos, God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And is what? And is so embarrassing. Is so like old and in the way. Is so like Neanderthal. It's not what God says. God says is profitable. I am so grateful to God that I grew up with a father who who lived and breathed and taught the authority of Scripture. Not the doctrine of an inerrancy. The authority of Scripture. He would never think of taking any text of Scripture and keeping it from our family. The most horrible, bloody stories... My father would read them to us. Listen, brothers and sisters, here's what I pray for. I pray for the day when instead of you coming to me and telling me that you didn't feel good when I met with you and that I hurt your feelings, I pray for the day when you're a Berean And you come to me, and you have your Bible in your hand, and you're going, it's not what it says. And I'm going to go, right on, dude. God bless you. Can you imagine what would happen in this country if the only time people complained to their pastors, it was because their pastors had gotten beyond the Word of God? I mean, we'd have, we'd have a reform. We'd have a revolution in the church. The pastors would look at you like you'd grown three eyes. How could you accuse me of not sticking to the Word of God? My mama don't love me. That doesn't feel very affirming. 
You're supposed to be nice to your pastor. Today's Pastor Appreciation Day. I mean, you guys, come on, think about it. Think about it. Out of every one million complaints that come to pastors each hour of every day, (laughs) trust me, (laughs) and this is the best congregation I've ever met in my life, out of every one million complaints, how many of them do you think are complaints that Scripture has been left behind? (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you, D. Wayne. Maybe half of one. You know, that might be one of the points in a laundry list, you know. And furthermore, infant baptism isn't biblical. (laughs) But first they would have said, I'm not Roman Catholic. (laughs) Okay, all right, okay, okay. All right, all right. You've got to put up with me. Listen, um, in Corinth, the church was divided. And what was divided was the proud from the proud. It was pride that caused the division. And what the division led to them doing was leaving what was written behind, exceeding what was written. That's it. Okay? Okay? Listen, I am not above bestiality. I'm not above it, and neither are you. Otherwise, that part of Scripture is not profitable. Listen, I'm not above having no fear of God before my eyes. And that's why Scripture records how many, many, many of the sons of Israel God killed. I am not above killing my infant children, putting them in the mouth of Moloch where they're burned up. In other words, I'm not above abortion. That's why the Bible records that the reason the Canaanites were absolutely killed is that they had done many horrible abominations before the eyes of God, one of which was giving their children to Moloch. And then the scriptures say that the ground, basically that the ground, scripture says this, it it vomited this wickedness in the promised land. And that's why it was ready for the Israelites. Because the sins of the Canaanites had had come up to the brim. And they had to wait for 400 years in Egypt until God had allowed the Canaanites' sins to come to the brim and to, to overflow the cup. And then God sent in the Israelites and told them, kill everything. I'm not above putting my children in the mouth of Moloch and having them consumed. I'm not above it. And neither are you. You can kill your children. You can have sex with animals. You can have sex with other men or women. You can have sex with your brother or your sister, your, your, your father's wife. Every single thing recorded in Scripture is profitable to those who fear God and are committed to not going beyond the text of Scripture. 
when I was out in Boston going to seminary, I had a friend, an acquaintance actually, not a friend, but I knew him, who went on for the Ph.D. at Harvard in Old Testament. Stupendous scholar, disciplined. He ended up being ABD, all but dissertation. And then it came time for him to submit his dissertation. He submitted it, and he was booted from the program. You know why he was booted? Because in his dissertation, he confessed his faith in the Word of God written. And they would not have it. In other words, brothers and sisters, there's a cost to not going beyond the things that are written. Okay? But the older I get, every time I open the Bible, every single time I open the Bible, I'd never noticed that the prohibition of sodomy and the prohibition of bestiality were cheek by jowl right next to each other. I never noticed it. And I've always thought that I should never mention bestiality when I talk about sodomy because I might break down the barrier people have to bestiality. And we're already breaking down the barriers against sodomy, so let's just leave bestiality out of it. And then last night I'm reading the Bible, the things written, and I notice right next to each other, right next to each other, both of them are condemned. And now I think... Every single time I warn you against sodomy. I'm going to warn you against bestiality. Why? (laughs) Because, Because why should I get beyond the things written? And and if you ain't going to trust scripture, what is you going to trust? I mean, really? You're going to trust being in nothingness? Ever tried to read that one? You're going to trust Victor Hugo? Tolstoy? Mark Twain? You're going to trust Hillary Clinton? Trust National Review? going to trust the Republican Party? You're going to trust the teachers' union? I mean, listen. You guys, I'm gaga for the Word of God. And because what I've learned is if I fear God and His Word, eh, I don't have to fear anybody else. I don't have to fear my wife. And she's formidable. I don't have to fear my mother-in-law, and she's honorable. I don't have to fear my brother, who for years was furious at me for using the word sodomy on the blog, and it ended up telling me to take off, take it off of the links on the left and replace it with the word homosexuality. You go on my blog now, sodomy's gone, it's homosexuality, and it's so much more, you know, sort of approachable, you know? It's so much more reasonable. I don't have to fear my brother. I don't have to fear my children. Think of how many parents spend their lives fearing their children. I don't have to fear my elders. I don't have to fear Stephen. Now, does this mean that I'm untethered? No. 
it means that I'm anchored to the word of God. And I, I will not let anybody move me off it. I won't do it. I won't do it. Okay? I won't do it. Now, that doesn't mean everything I say comes from Scripture does. I have to be rebuked for getting beyond the things that are written. Do you understand? Because we all do it. We all claim to be honoring Scripture, making a big show of it, when we're actually honoring ourselves. <laughs> right? Right? Or is this not you? And so that's why I also believe in a plurality of the eldership, because as the elders fight, we had a good one this last week, as the elders fight, and I don't mean spit and punch, I mean debate. But everybody's so hypersensitive about relationships that I use the word fight and argue to desensitize you. So that you realize the Holy Spirit is pleased to bring truth and to purify truth from controversy. And that's also in Corinthians. <laughs> if you don't know where, that's because you don't know your Bible. All right. So once again, let me read the scripture, and then we'll end. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself, says Paul, and Apollos, for your sakes, so that in us you may learn what? Come on. Not to what? So that no one of you will become what? In behalf of one against the other. And if you think about the fruit today in postmodern churches, among postmodern people of our culture, our culture has taught us that it's the very man who will not exceed what is written, who is accused of being arrogant because he submits to God's authority instead of the cloying authority of sentimentality and feelings. And so you can have your feelings and your sentiment and your cheap talk of passion, or you can have God and his word.